Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me as always. Honor and a privilege. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I, I think that there will be many of you listening who will care to share some opinions today. That is a, an early guess. Although it's, it's tough to know. Some days on this show we have all the lines lit for pretty much the whole time I'm on air. Other days I'm like, you know, who wants to, who wants to tell me I'm wrong on something? And on the line, or, or tell me I'm right. And the line doesn't ring. So we will see how much you want to weigh in. But it will be great to hear from you on this because uh, a bunch of things happened today. I guess a bunch of things happen every day, but in particular, uh, we will focus on the push for tax reform, uh, Trump's return from his Asia trip, and talk uh, and his talk about the uh, need to deal with China and trade better. Uh, we'll update you on every day for weeks now. Another. Series of uh, sexual harassment allegations out there against different individuals. We'll talk to you about that. And then also, maybe just for fun, because why not, we can discuss the articles of impeachment introduced by a few House Democrats today for Donald Trump. Womp, womp. That's not going to go very far. That's not going to do very much at all. I think that's... um, In fact... There's not, there are a few things, and I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to talk to you more about this later. There are a few things that I can think of that would be more helpful to Trump than some noisy leftists uh, really pushing this notion of impeachment. Impeachment for what exactly? Ah, you know, they hate him. Few things will get Trump's base, I would, I would argue, to uh, rally around him more quickly and solidly than these uh, really frivolous impeachment allegations, which is what they are. I mean, just nonsense, right? Just absolute nonsense. Still no verdict on the Menendez case, I should know, right? Not, nothing yet. We don't have, I don't know where that's going to go. He would be the first, you, they were sent home. Okay. This, the, the jurors were sent home, so they're going to come back? Wow. And I, I remember watching that O.J. Simpson uh, FX show. That was a pretty good overview i feel like of what it's like to be one of these jurors you really you get sequestered and they limit what you can see and read and everything i, I don't know I, not not for me not something i'm interested in but menendez would be the first senator or could be if he is found guilty remember this would be felony corruption would be the the first senator oh gosh and i mean the the only senators really that were removed by the senate uh, with one exception that i can think of uh, were all Confederates. They were all people from the, they're all senators for the, uh, that, that went with the Confederacy. Uh, there was one guy who I think like 1797 or eight or 1800, I think he was part of some effort to 
give back a part of the country to uh, a, a foreign power or something like that. I'm forgetting the specifics. But anyway, the point is a big deal. If you have a senator that has to be removed from the chamber by his fellow senators, which I think is because usually what happens, people are like, well, Buck, there must have been other senators. Yeah, usually they resign. Right. But Menendez, I mean, he may he may force the issue. If he gets if he gets convicted, he may say, I'm, I'm going to ride this out because if Chris otherwise, Chris Christie gets to pick the uh, interim senator. So there there are there are some issues, issues here, to be sure. Um, and that's something we will continue to follow. But. Look, it's it's the biggest, still the biggest story in the country right now. And we just had a a press conference, uh, press conference before we went on air about the uh, Roy Moore uh, situation, the Roy Moore allegations. Uh, this is now a a a focus. Um, the media is well, it's been a focus for days, but now it's it's getting to the point where. You've had a lot of Republicans pull out their support. The RN, what is it, the Republican National Senatorial Committee, right? RNSC, I think it was, pulled out their support, for fundraising support. Uh, you've had Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, obviously Mitch McConnell, before any of them, John McCain. You've had a whole bunch. Mike Lee, thank you, Ty, Mike Lee. You've had a whole bunch of Republicans that are saying, nope. Not not okay with this. They they want Roy Moore to step down, and there's more there's more talk and discussion uh, of the possibility of a write-in candidacy for a write-in candidacy for uh, Jeff Sessions to take over. So he would leave the DOJ and he would take over the Alabama Senate seat, assuming that he was successful in all of this. Uh, so. I want to, here's here's where the the press conference went earlier today. I'm just going to play a little bit of this for you. The big the big debate right now within this whole argument over who do you believe the the Moore camp or his accusers? It it is focused in now on this note that Gloria Allred and uh, Nelson, Ms. Nelson, the the accuser from earlier in the week. Uh, said that the note was written by Roy Moore in her high school yearbook when he was in his 30s. And a lot a lot of people understand they're saying, okay, well, Roy claims right to never have met her. Never have he claimed to have no contact with her at that time or around that period. And she's saying not only did he uh, assault me, but also I've got this note in my yearbook. And we talked about this earlier in the week, but just to bring us all in an up-to-date position here. Now, earlier today, and I think we probably have uh, some of this, we could probably play some of this um, audio for you. The Moore team has been, the legal team has been problematic today for just, regardless of of who's telling the truth and who's not, just from an an optics perspective, the Moore squad has not been doing a, a strong job of making the case for him. There was a a cease and desist letter that went out that, quite honestly, look, I'm not, this is not me saying I believe or don't believe anything. This is just me analyzing what's happening. And that cease and desist letter looked like, forget about it was written by a first-year law student. It looked like it was written by a first-year high school student. I mean, it was really uh, jumbled and and weak and confused. And when when you're at this level of national scrutiny, 
you got to have a legal team that knows which way is up. I mean, they've got to know what's going on. So that was one problem. And the other problem was, I don't even know if we have the, uh, do we have that Velshi audio from earlier today? No, it's all right. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it later. And another lawyer representing Moore just stepped in it on TV, and it's just not not helping the, the, the cause. I will say the lawyer that just had this press conference right before we went on air, that lawyer for Roy Moore seemed pretty squared away. There seemed to be a much better, he seemed to have a much better grasp of the stakes and of, of everything that's going on here. And the handwriting in this yearbook, that's what the focus has become, the handwriting in this yearbook. And here is just a part of that. We'll analyze this later with a, with a legal analyst, the specifics of where this will all go, but I just want to share some of this press conference with you. Remember I told you about that 99 divorce action. Judge Moore looked at that DA after his signature, which they allege was because he was the district attorney. Well, he wasn't. He was the assistant district attorney. But Judge Moore says he can't ever remember ever signing his name with DA after it, but he had seen it before. You know where he had seen it? When he was on the bench, his assistant, whose initials are capital D period, A period, Delver Adams, would stamp his signature on documents and then put capital D period, A period. That's exactly how the signature appears on the divorce decree that Judge Moore signed, dismissing the divorce action with Ms. Nelson. So this is his team saying that there's an explanation for that handwriting and that signature. Uh, They're saying it's a forgery, clearly. And they're saying that there's a way that they would have been able to find the forgery. Now, this is going to get very contentious. I I will say that there were there were rumblings today among those that I talked to, including some who have some connections into, uh, well, into the the higher echelons of political reporting and and to some of the folks in D.C. who are exerting a lot of pressure here in the Republican Party on Moore. It seemed like when they called for a press conference five o'clock today that he might be stepping down. That, that was the rumor. Now, clearly, that is not what happened. In fact, Moore went in the opposite direction. And his team has said, no way. They not that, What was his? That was his. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. We're going we're gonna to play the, the earlier today attorney. I'm just going to play it for you because it's an example of, you know, be, you got to be very crisp, concise, clear on television with your message. And, and especially when you're representing somebody else, you, you can't. Try to get uh, try to get cute on TV, or yeah, you know, I, I don't even know what this guy was doing, quite honestly. But we'll play that for you in a little bit. You have to hold through on that. It was an example of what not to do if you're an attorney who's going on TV making a case. Uh, anyway, back to the the handwriting here. This all turns on right now whether or not that handwriting was in fact Roy Moore. Because if it's Moore's at that point, at that point, all you're saying is if you're willing to still vote for him, if he li- if he lied about that. What you're saying is that it matters more to have a Republican have that seat than to send any kind of message about uh, morality and uh, ethics in our political system and with the Republican Party. And also that the long term reputational damage that the Republican Party may suffer as a result of having somebody who is uh, accused of. And I think people in that circumstances circumstance would even be more willing to say uh, credibly accused of sexual misconduct in this way, that would be difficult. But 
if the if the handwriting is found to be, and they're calling for an outside expert to look at it, to have Gloria Allred release custody of the document to a third party that will be neutral, and there's all this. We'll get into some of the legal specifics with you later. Uh, but if if that happens, and for some reason there's real a real question about the the authenticity of that note, uh, then, then you know someone's going to have a lot of explaining to do here, unless this just turns into well. And I think this could very well be the case. By the way, our expert says it's not his handwriting. Their expert says it is his handwriting, right? Which I, I have a I have my concerns, and and then we're kind of just back where we are now, which is just who do you believe? Who do you believe? Um, do I do I think that we have a a lot of accusers and uh, a lot of people coming out to say that Judge Moore was dating a lot of a lot of. Apart, this is entirely apart from these specific criminal allegations, which is the main focus of this. But a lot of people saying that he was dating young women, and when he was asked about whether you know he dated, he said, "I've never dated anybody without asking for their parents' permission." There's this was not a a strong defense, and that's why I think Sean last night Hannity uh, said Roy Moore needs to explain this within 24 hours, or else I'm pulling my support and he should step down. Because clearly there there needed to be some explaining of what's going on here. There ha- is the handwriting enough of an explanation for? Well, I, I, look, you you tell me eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. And I will just say this: uh, these are very they are very serious allegations, and I do think that there are there are limits even in our bare knuckle all in political environment. There are limits to what any of us should be willing to accept from a from a politician. Even as unethical and grotesque as the other side was willing to be for Clinton and many others, there still should be there still should be limits. Uh, that said, I'm also well aware of the fact that Dan Rather tried to throw a presidential election by having straight up forged documents on TV. That, that is just a that is a fact and that is history. That happened, no question about it. Dan Rather lost his job. You can imagine. How tough it was for that guy to get fired by CBS after the decades of building him up as something other than a guy in a suit who's reading off of a prompter. But anyway, they still have him on TV, I should note. Today, they'll have him on TV to let him weigh in on the state of American journalism. Oh, yes, Dan Rather is very very authoritative on journalism and ethics. Uh, Yeah, he ran fake, fake National Guard documents to try and get... Bush to lose the election. He did that. That happened. So, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we should see what happens with his handwriting analysis. But what if the handwriting analysis comes well? I won't speculate on the what if one way or the other right now. I want to know what you think. 844-900-2825. We will have Emily Campagno joining us to talk about the legal ins and outs of this. We'll also discuss some updates on Fusion GPS and Trump's return from the Far East, and oh, so mu- oh, and uh, one of the worst, uh, one of the worst leaders on the planet is no longer in charge in Zimbabwe. So that's a good thing. Mugabe is uh, is out. We should all celebrate that a little bit. I'll tell you a bit about that later. Stay with me. Well, there's another accuser. There's another accuser. This just broke right before we came on air. A Gadsden woman. This is. Uh, a al doc is that Al what is al stand Alabama dot com okay yeah al dot com yeah yeah uh, a Gadsden woman says Roy Moore 
groped her while she was in his law office on legal business with her mother in 1991. Moore was married at that time. In the past week, Moore has been accused by five other women of a range of behaviors that include sexual misconduct with a woman when she was 14 and sexual assault of another when she was 16. This is the first public accusation of physical contact that happened after Moore was married. Okay, well, you, you know, I I think it's fair that Tyrone and I were talking in the break. This, there's going to be more. I mean, I, I think there's this is not this is not uh, the last of the allegations. So now, you know, you, you all of us who are going to form an opinion here, you know, you got a choice to make. Either Roy Moore is in the midst of a a, a, a huge setup. Right? These are the only choices at this point. Roy Moore is being set up by the by the media, and these women are somehow being coaxed into this. Or Roy Moore is a is a sexual predator. That's it. There's there's no other right. There's no third option here. There's no this is a misunderstanding or anything else. So you you either think that this is a a massive conspiracy, or you think that this is uh, that that Roy Moore is a guy of. Uh, Got a lot of skeletons in the closet, and they are all coming out now. That's that's. I don't know what I don't know what the third option could even possibly be. Uh, all right, we got Paul calling in from Alabama. Hey, Paul. Hey, Buck. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, my only point is about the whole yearbook thing, and it can be used to discredit the lady making the allegations, but it can't really do anything to hurt Roy Moore if you really think about it. I'm 41 years old. You know, a little over 20 years ago, I went to high school and signed a lot of yearbooks. I couldn't tell you whose yearbook I signed and whose I didn't. Now, his was, his was 40 years ago. I don't, I don't remember people I met 10 years ago. Okay, so, but, but Paul, you understand that, that when he was allegedly signing the year, I mean, I could ask you this, you know, you said you're 40, unless you have children, uh, when was the last time that you, you signed somebody's high school yearbook? Oh, of course it was high school, but I was a nobody. <laughs> but, that's, um, but so, but so, if Roy Moore is running around uh, yeah. signing high school yearbooks when he's, you know, I mean, I mean, he was thirty-two. How about if a young high school kid comes up to you at one of your things and asks you to sign their yearbook? Uh, your Buck Sexton, a radio personality, you're liable to sign it and probably never remember them. I guess, but didn't he claim? I mean, yeah, that's I, I see what you're saying. But did, didn't this? Didn't Roy Moore claim that he had had no? He had never met her, no contact with her, right? So you're saying well, that he might have forgotten. Is, he might. Again, she might have just. Years ago, you could forget. So, no, I, I, I understand. You're saying that he might have signed her yearbook, not realized who she was, and then later on she fabricated this whole thing. But why? But why would she do? But Paul, why would she do that? Well, from what I've just heard on Hannity in the uh, interview. She actually also said that they hadn't had any contact since then. But in 1999, Roy Moore presided over her divorce. Paul, we will play that. I don't mean to cut you off or run into a break here. We will play that soundbite, Paul. We're coming to that in just a few. Stay with me. Okay, so it turned into a lawyer discussion this afternoon with the press conference. Judge Roy Moore's team standing up in front of the country and deciding that they're going to make this about a couple of issues, at least right now. Uh, one of them had to do with the contact that judge the judge had or did not have in the past with his accuser, and then also on the issue of handwriting. To help us analyze this, we have Emily Campagno in studio with us here. 
She is a legal and sports business analyst. Uh, she's an attorney, and you can follow her at Emily Campagno on Twitter. Emily, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's deal with first the issue of the handwriting, uh, because this seems to be, I think, the crux of the whole discussion right now of who do you believe? Whom does one believe? Does someone believe the Roy Moore side or they believe the accusers? It's right now all focused on the handwriting. And here is what was said specifically about where Judge Roy Moore is going with this. 14. Remember I told you about that 99 divorce action. Judge Moore looked at that DA after his signature, which they allege was because he was the district attorney. Well, he wasn't. He was the assistant district attorney. But Judge Moore says he can't ever remember ever signing his name with D.A. after it, but he had seen it before. You know where he had seen it? When he was on the bench, his assistant, whose initials are capital D period, A period, Delbra Adams, would stamp his signature on documents and then put capital D period, A period. That's exactly how the signature appears on the divorce decree that Judge Moore signed dismissing the divorce action with Ms. Nelson. So now they're saying that they believe that that Roy Moore's team, his lawyer there, that they need to verify whether or not what came out of that press conference with Gloria Allred and his accuser uh, is in fact an accurate is is real. Is, is it a forgery or not? How good are they at doing this? How how accurate would they be at this analysis? Or is there a lot of interpretation involved? Well, in the court's eyes, in terms of admissibility, so let's just talk about that for a second. Not that this is heading to court, but because that's our barometer of authenticity, of how we bear that standard of should we care about this? Does this matter? Is it's not all the time admissible? So courts have often ruled, actually, that there is an amount of speculation involved with handwriting analysis. So for this type of thing, it's almost like a lie detector test where we treat it as infallible at times, but it's not always infallible. And in the eyes of the court, it's not always admissible. So it was an interesting point that his team made today, a very detailed point. And it's one where I think it will absolutely torpedo and explode into a whole public speculation. Because then what happens if they're allowed to actually do an analysis, let's say, and the results are conclusively in their favor, then what happens? Do we then get into an argument over, as you're saying, the interpretation of it? Do we get into an argument over the authenticity of it? Are the results themselves concrete? So to me, it was a very interesting opening of a can of worms, frankly, and it might be a significant destruction. And then there was also a discussion about when the last contact was had between Judge Moore uh, Judge Moore and his accuser. Here's what was said. During the press conference that Ms. Nelson and Gloria Allred had on Monday, they both said that Ms. Nelson, after the allegations, had never seen nor had any contact with Judge Moore. As it turns out, in 1999, Ms. Nelson filed a divorce action against her then-husband, Mr. Harris, Guess who that case was before? It was filed in Etowah County, and the judge assigned was Roy S. Moore, circuit judge of Etowah County. There was contact. So this doesn't seem to d- destroy the, the narrative one way or the other. It's really just going after the credibility of the witness, right? Because th- if there was contact many years later, it wouldn't affect the initial allegations. 
But because they didn't disclose it, because the attacker did not accurately portray that there was later on, there was contact later on, it seems like this lawyer is saying that they have, this is a an inaccuracy that would seem minor, but it is meant to impugn the integrity of the witness, or not the witness here, but of the accuser. Absolutely. That was my first thought when I heard that part of it, was that when small inconsistencies arise, that's exactly what happens. It punctures the credibility of the entire witness, accuser, etc. And that's what attorneys do in court on both sides, right? Each side is tasked with destroying the credibility of whoever's statements you want to prove aren't true. And that's what's difficult in a victim or accuser's position is when you have a level of specificity and detail that is important to the accusations being levied, then if there's any inconsistency at all, it renders the entire thing in dispute. It is impossible, probably as humans, to remember something with 100% accuracy or to articulate or report it as such. But even a small inconsistency, we pounce on it. But also rightly so, because the accused has also the right to have that credibility be analyzed and especially in this present-day climate, all over the place, we are instructed and feel that we need to believe every allegation to ensure we're not victim-shaming, but at what cost to the accused's valor as well, their reputation as well. So, um, and, and I think the most difficult part about this is when these stories are presented in this holistic fashion and then small details are analyzed, is that it doesn't necessarily have to do with the veracity at all, as you're saying. It can be true, true, and unrelated, but how do we know? And that's what's so hard about a jury or a person or anyone listening, anyone tasked with this decision. And it's made harder when the accused is so vociferously defending against it. Yeah, this is all who do you believe much more so right now. Right now, at least, it's, it's who do you believe more so than we're presenting evidence uh, whether the specific incident in question happened or not, right? It's which side do you find more credible in this whole dispute? They're not presenting more evidence about the day in question where there was the alleged assault. This is now all about handwriting that would have been later on or a meeting that would have been later on. It's essentially if somebody lie, if someone's caught in a lie here about anything, that will harm them, even if it has nothing to do with the actual allegation of previous criminal behavior. Totally. And that's the point. Humans are complex. That's what we deal with every day as attorneys. That's what we deal with every day in our human relationships. Good people do bad things. Bad people do good things. How do you separate? How do you how do you truly denounce an entire person for an inconsistency or lie if they've cried wolf once or if they haven't cried once? I mean, it's just it's so complicated. But I think what's interesting is the fact that we're having this conversation means that we are in the minutia of their defense. And that was the strategy. We are all now dissecting handwriting and inconsistent statements and credibility. I mean, under the rubric of credibility, which is important, but it also, when you kind of scope out, begs the original question of if someone is accused at all, if there's any question at all, is that someone that should be in the position that they still are. Right, because ultimately this is, this is a political decision. This is not really a legal decision, but it's being viewed through a legal prism right now. But there's exactly. not going to be a trial. No one thinks there will. There's not going to be charges. No one thinks there will. It's what do people think. It's all about what people think. Emily exactly. Campagno, everybody here in studio with us. She's a legal and sports 
business analyst. You can follow her at Emily Campagno on Twitter. Emily, we're going to have you talk about Weinstein a little later. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We are lit in the Freedom Hut here. Every single line lit up as we take calls. Spots will be opening up. I know it was it was uh, lit up like a Christmas tree as soon as I opened up those lines. So here we go. Let's get into it. Dawn in Texas on the iHeart app. Hey, Dawn. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. What's on your mind? Um, I thought that you're proven, you're innocent until proven guilty, and it seems like everyone seems to think that Roy Moore is guilty. I have had experience um, being a psych nurse, um, knowing that I've had a friend that a girl accused of rape. They came up and arrested him after we were all saying he didn't do it, and he spent the night in jail. She uh, said that she lied, which she did. And then I've had a family member and $3,000. I think we just lost her there. We didn't cut her off. She, I think it just dropped. Don, did we lose you? Oh, oh, it's a, I blame Soros. It's a Soros conspiracy. I did not like her phone call, so I cut it off. The telecommunications, I control them all. Uh, Soros is scary. JC in Virginia on WPTI. JC, what's up? Hey, Jay. Uh, hey, Buck. How you doing? First time listener and caller, by the way. Well, fantastic, sir. Thank you. I love your show. Uh, well, I'd like to make a disclosure real quick. Uh, I don't speak for all Virginians. Uh, I think above Richmond is North Virginia. Anything below uh, that is Southern Virginia, so just throw that out there. But back to the more thing, I really do think... This is my personal opinion that, you know, if the guy is guilty, that's fine. He needs to go to jail or resign or whatever he needs to do. But why wait 40 years until you come clean with uh, the lady that and, – and, and, Well, it's ladies. There's a bunch of there's – a, there's, a, there's a bunch of accusers now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I get that. I, I understand that. But it's, it's, it's really – funny to me that they wait until he's fixing to go through election to do this and the other thing is um if you watch when she was uh with uh and why pick all red of all things that's crazy anyway but anyway um when she got on the press conference she read out what she you know she was uh uh, he was accused of why do you have to read something off of a piece of paper if you can you know is it for memory purpose, you know, purposes or what? It's just kind of crazy why she had to read a statement and she can't express her. JC, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's not uncommon, especially when there could be legal ramifications. You could be sued for defamation to write out a to write out a statement. So I I, I got to I just I got to point that out for you. Um, and then in terms of why they waited for so long, I don't have an answer to that. But I know. mean. It, Look, if I was a woman and I got, you know, uh, you know, in trouble with a guy bothering me or whatever they was doing to me, I'm going to report that thing. Why wait that long? That's just crazy to me. I don't understand why. I mean, I understand, you know, he was the DEA. Maybe she was afraid or whatever. But it's just funny now that she waited this long to do it. And, you know, especially when he's fixing to uh, go through. Look, a, a lot of a lot of people have been calling into the show and saying they think that they think that they smell something 
something foul at work here. They think that there's a this is all a political hit, JC. So you're, you're not alone on that one. I appreciate you calling in from Virginia and uh, Shields High, and thank you for joining the the Freedom Hunt family here. Uh, I wonder if JC heard that yesterday. I had I had family in uh, family in Charlottesville, Virginia. Family, uh, you know, one one day I'll do a, an impersonation of my Charlottesville grandmother on the show. She was she was quite a quite a character and had uh, and had quite an accent. It was great. Uh, Chris in North, uh, in North Hampshire, Chris in New Hampshire, Buck, work on your states. Listen on the iHeart app. Hey, Chris. How you doing, Buck? Yeah, you know, I, I, I really am just another one of those people that are saying something smells. I mean, certainly nobody wants to be the first person to go ahead and say, "Mm, you've made an allegation, um, of, of sexual impropriety or whatever. And to discredit them just right off the bat, it does it does smell of of a political odor here. Did, did you hear the show, and, Chris, where I said because I I really remember this very very strongly, and actually a, a couple of my family members I think would would uh, would back me up on this if asked. That when I read the initial Rolling Stone piece uh, about the UVA fraternity, I was just like, nah, that doesn't that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right to me. But I don't want to p- go public with it because. You don't want to be the guy who says that you don't believe a horrific, violent gang rape story, and it's true, right? Now you're some kind of monster. But as we know, that was Correct. a complete and utter fabrication. But the forces that you deal with, the forces arrayed against you, if you're wrong on something like that, are, are considerable. Hello? Yes, sir. We're listening to you. Okay, good. Um, I, I totally agree with... You know, I'm glad that we're we're in agreement with that, and I, I really think that. But aren't there uh, aren't there a lot of accusers, Chris? I mean, look, can, can we at least agree that there's there's a lot of accusers here? So you know, if it were one person with one claim, but but now you know, think about it this way: if these women are being coerced in any way to testify, all it takes is one of them to decide that you know she doesn't she doesn't want to do this anymore and say you know what they coerced me. and then the whole thing falls down right so it's not right. a conspiracies are complicated which is why they're usually not true yes and i think that allowing due process to to do its process um is going to bring to light whatever we need I hear you, Chris. You know, Thank you for calling in from, sure. as I said, North Hampshire or New Hampshire, rather. Wonderful state. Granite state, right? This is what people, whatever there's like, whatever it's primary season, everyone, everyone learns what the state's other name is because you just want to keep repeating the name of the state. So, uh, Like, next up we, is, is ho- no, Florida is a sunshine state. It, Hawaii must be the Aloha state, right? Aloha. We got Lonnie in Hawaii on the iHeart app. Hey, Lonnie. Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm not in Hawaii. I'm from West Virginia, but your your screen caller girl, the last time I called in, thought I sounded familiar, someone from Hawaii. But I'm Lonnie. I'm a truck driver. I listen to you every night from six to nine on the iHeart app. Thank you, sir. Um, what 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 I what I found interesting in that press conference was the statement that his lawyer made about her that and if you play it again and listen real closely he says that the judge dismissed her divorce against her husband. He, he, you know, so she's 
She's uh. So you think she has motive? You're saying she has motive, Lonnie, to get some payback? I do. I I, I do. I do. And I and I know that liberals are dirty and they'll do anything in the world. But when it was Obama, it was always racism, was it not? All you had to do was label the man a racist, and he's done. Correct. It is true that right now, if someone is if someone is is labeled or accused of being a a uh, you know sexual misconduct, sexual harasser, sexual assault, or any of these things, it's you're it's lights out. You're finished. Yeah, yeah, you're done. You're done. You're done. And so they'll they'll you know, and I and and I and I hate for any woman to be assaulted. And if he did it, he's a scumbag. Okay, but once again, we don't know. And you know, I think she has motive. If if you go back and listen to his. You know, well, I think I think Lonnie, that's why they included that part in the press conference. Clearly, so you, you're astute to pick up on why the Moore camp would would want that to be out there. So I, I hear you, man. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to the show. I do appreciate it. Shields high. One more before we go. do. We have time for no, nah, no, we don't. Got so many more calls, guys. Uh, so like like we did the other day, uh, I will get into a couple more calls here because I want to hear a, a, a lot of perspectives on this issue. Remember, we just had another accuser come out now, right before we came on air. Just had a press conference, Judge Moore. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We've got a spot or two open down the line because we took a couple calls. We've got some other calls we will get to. Uh, if you can hold through the break, if you can't, well, then we will um, move on to another topic probably. But if the lines are lit, I'll, I'll run some calls here because I want to get your want to get your voices in. And then we can talk about uh, Fusion GPS, a little bit of uh, the latest on that. And maybe some tax talk. Woo! Taxes. Um, we got a lot of stuff coming. 844-900-2825. We are live. We want to hear from you. Give us a ring. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back, team. We are talking about the Roy Moore situation, which just more and more information. He's, he's dug in. He is not backing off at all. He had a press conference at 5 Eastern today. A, a lawyer held a press conference for him saying uh, that they want verification they want the uh, opportunity to verify, and I think, obviously, they would want to debunk this note left in uh, Nelson, his accuser's yearbook. Uh, there are other accusers, as I've been mentioning to you. Uh, there is, in fact, a, an additional accuser now who says she was groped by Moore a long time ago, I think in the 90s, in his law office. That Brand new. That was on Alabama.com. Um, and I also have for you here... An open letter from Roy Moore to, uh, well, to Sean Hannity, but it's an open letter, so we can all see it. Here's what he writes. Dear Sean, I am suffering the same treatment other Republicans have had to endure. A month prior to the general election for U.S. Senate Alabama, I have been attacked by the Washington Post and other, uh, and other liberal media in a desperate attempt to smear my character and defeat my campaign. Over the last 40 years, I have held several public offices. He goes through all the offices. In addition to running five statewide and three county campaigns for public office, I've been involved in two major controversies that attracted national attention, one about the Ten Commandments and the other the sanctity of marriage. Uh, the Alabama Judicial Inquiry Commission, Court of the Judiciary, and Attorney General have investigated, scrutinized, examined, and vetted me, not to mention every opposing candidate against whom I have run. I've been married for almost 33 years to my wife, Kayla. We have four children and five granddaughters. We are in the process of investigating these false allegations to determine their origin and motivation. For instance, we have documented that the most recent accuser, Beverly Nelson, was a party in a divorce action before me in uh, 
Etowah County Circuit Court in 1999. No motion was made for me to recuse. In her accusations, Nelson did not mention that I was the judge assigned to her divorce case in 1999, a matter that apparently caused her no distress at a time that was 18 years closer to the alleged assault. Yet 18 years later, while talking before the cameras about the supposed assault, she seemingly could not contain her emotions. My signature on the order of dismissal in the divorce case was annotated with the letters D.A., representing the initials of my court assistant. Curiously, the supposed yearbook inscription is also followed by the same initials D.A., but at that time I was deputy district attorney, not district attorney. Those initials, as well as the date under the signature block and the printed name of the restaurant, are written in a style inconsistent with the rest of the yearbook inscription. The sevens in Christmas 1977 are a noticeably different script than the sevens in the date 1222-77. I believe tampering has occurred. Are we at a stage in American politics in which false allegations can overcome a public record of 40 years, stampede the media and politicians to condemn an innocent man, and potentially impact the outcome of an election of national importance? When allegations of events... uh, when allegations of events, false allegations can overcome a public record. Uh, whoops, sorry, I'm running. I'm, I'm actually I lost the last page here, but you get the idea. And that was an end quote there, except for my whoops. Uh, you understand this is the openly. He, he's saying no way. He's saying it's all fake. Attacking specifically the allegation from Beverly Nelson and the yearbook inscription, uh, but he's saying it's all it's all a lie. Uh, this is. This is quite a situation we find ourselves in, my friends. All right, we got, a, we got every line lit. Let's take some calls, and we'll get into it. Sadie in Boston, thank you for holding. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm good. <laughs> I uh, Before I get to my point, I, it, I, I did my undergraduate at uh, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. I'll tell you, that is a beautiful city in April when all those dogwoods and azaleas are out. It is gorgeous. Yeah. So your grandmother, she lives in a lovely, lovely Grandmother place. and my uncle, yeah. I could yeah. Still, I could still, she, she unfortunately passed some years ago, but I could still hear yelling, book, book, just like that. <laughs> No, we don't do that. <laughs> but anyway, I, I thought it was interesting. I would just want to take a distance, just a, a step back. When the lady was uh, talking about her uh, incident that happened, uh, all of a sudden when I saw Gloria, I thought, well, my word, this just appears. She appears to be a media hoe. And she sits there, and every time something like this comes up, I wondered who was picking up this tab for her again. She is not cheap. She costs a lot of bucks. And I don't think these women have that money to be able to put But you don't think that Gloria Allred for the headlines here would take this pro bono? I mean, if we're going to drill down into your theory, I mean, that's I know plenty of lawyers that will do that on, on a contingency basis or on a pro bono basis. Well, I think it, I think it does bring to light, just like when you see Jesse Jackson running after the race card every time you turn around. Uh, it, it, yes, I think it is for visibility, that's for sure. But the, it, it also, uh, substantiates, I feel, the motivation to, uh, you know, it's self-propelling. And this is just an opportunity that she can get out there and, uh, bully the uh, American people one more time with uh, with her 
uh, clients. So, so you, for you, a big a big red flag here, Sadie, is that Gloria, the fact that Gloria Allred is involved, period, for you is an issue. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. All that right. Is, that is definitely it. All right. Well, Sadie, thank and, you so much and, for holding. We got a Boston caller from Sadie. Sadie, Shields High, and thank you so much. Uh, let's take, um, let's take Darby in Texas on the iHeart app. Hey, Darby. Hey, Buck, how you doing, man? It's been a while. I'm glad to talk to you again. Uh, you too. Thank you for your call. Echo some, absolutely. I'm probably going to echo some previous callers, but, um, I think that, I think you made a good point when you said the conspiracy is unlikely because it's very hard for that many people to get together at one time. It's a very complicated, very difficult thing to do. I think he's probably guilty. The only thing that worries me is that we have reached a point where he is guilty before proven innocent. And at this point, it's really sort of a his word against someone else's. And I feel like that's a really dangerous place for us to be, especially in light of all the things that are going on now with Hollywood and all these media executives and everything else. And I know you've been talking about this quite a bit. That's just kind of a scary place for us to be in America. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely, Darby. I mean, look, let's just let's step aside from the Roy Moore specifics for a second. And just given the current climate uh, over all these, as I say, the, the purge of the perverts that's going on in Hollywood. And uh, and I think, by the way, it's coming to Capitol Hill, too. I, I, I It's not going to be as bad as like the Weinstein Spacey stuff, but we're going to see some women, I think, come forward. And, and I think they're going to talk about what's been going on with all these uh, politicos in D.C. for all. But anyway, um, my, my concern here is that and look, they tried this with Trump, right? That was what the whole NBC News tape and the Billy Bush and all that stuff was about. Uh, but my concern is that they will now be now that they have had very uh, not just credible, but uh, confirmed, corroborated allegations against a lot of high profile people that now the left can pick somebody. And if we're talking about something that's either a much lesser offense or just fabricated wholesale they can destroy someone before they have any ability to mount any real defense, right? I mean, if you're a media person, for example, and they get together, you know, uh, even just one accusation now of sexual harassment and certain outlets pick that up, you might have all your sponsors drop and you may be fired before you get a chance to do anything about it. And so we should just be aware that, you know, every case has to be evaluated on the specifics and on its merits. It can't be oh, this is a movement, you know, it can't be, oh, this is just the cost of doing business is that innocent people are going to get caught up in this as well because it's so important to reform the system, right? That's, and we and know Democrats will I, go there, just a question of when. Oh, they will. And one of the things that I, one of the, one of my favorite terms that I've heard you say, and I use it all the time, is that the process is the punishment. With Democrats, oh, yeah. that's their point. They will, they will destroy you as a sport, and as long as they get, as long as their means justifies the ends, everything's fine doesn't matter true or not so yeah anyway i'll let you go yeah man shields high darby thank you thank you so much for calling and yeah the if the ends justify the means for democrats that's all they need uh we will take um mark north carolina wpti hey mark hello buck thank you so much for taking my call thank you uh i'm gonna play uh a little bit of a role here this reminds me a lot of that movie my cousin Vinny where they brought those two boys in and practically had them ready for the electric chair before there was any cross-examination. The two Utes. Yeah, those Utes. And, and I mean, those witnesses, when you watch that movie, they're about as credible as you can ask for. You know, they saw them coming out, and they jumped in the car and spun off, and, you know, 
the whole nine yards. They were guilty. And but I'm going to I'm going to give you some cross examination type things to think about that nobody has brought up. All right, let's hear I'm it. Sixty. I'm sixty three years old. I was in the seventies, and there was a social climate in the seventies that. I'm very familiar with, but I don't think a lot of the millennials or the Gen Xers are. First of all, your high school annual comes out at the end of the year. It's, it, it is a book that represents your graduating class, and towards the end of the year, when everybody's going off to different colleges, you take it around and you get your friends to sign yeah, okay. it, and, and they put their name in it. Sure. Well, you don't give it to everybody. You only give it to your friends, right? Yeah, yeah. And when your friends sign it, they typically sign it, Joe or Bob or, or Mary. And, you know, if you're a guy and, and, and also the people that give you their annuals, that's an indication that they, they like you. You're one of, you know, you're one of their kind of. Yeah, I definitely didn't go down to the district attorney's office here to get a signature for it. Definitely. Well, I mean, if a cheerleader comes up and hands me her annual, like, hey, uh, uh, I'm, yeah, I'll sign it, you know, because it's an indication of friendship. And well, yeah, if you're her friend and you're in high school, sure. Yeah, right. So now we've got this signature in this annual in December. Was that December the following year, like eight months later? Nobody's signing annuals in December. That's that's crazy. Everybody's off to college or whatever, and you don't take it into the restaurant, have it sitting on the counter and wait for a you know, a good-looking DA to come in, you slide it over there, like, hey, honey, uh, you mind signing my annual? I know you're a big wig at the Dowd Courthouse. No. The only adults that ever sign an annual are teachers. Teachers, yeah, teachers and coaches. Okay, now, I'm going to jump over to the other uh, the No, no, same girl. She's in the car. They drove around the back of the restaurant. He's, you know, trying to get to second base or whatever it is. And she wants to run away. Well, now she's at the restaurant. She knows where she is, right? But he reaches over and locks the door. Well, this is 1977, okay? I don't even know if he's driving a new car. If he's driving a car like I was driving, all you have to do is reach over at your shoulder as a passenger and unlock the door. The big old knob's sitting right there. There aren't any automatic lights, you know, locks. There's no child safety locks. None of that, unless, you know, he's a serial rapist and he's pulled the handles off. But the other thing in this whole thing that doesn't make any sense, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a, uh, I can't think of the word I want to use, but my father was a Baptist minister, okay? And he married my mother, and I was the second child. But my dad had a thing for the women. And before he died, he had married seven women, okay? doesn't look good on the Baptist resume, but it was obvious that he had a character flaw. Nice guy, could charm the socks off of anybody, but he had a flaw. Well, we're expected to believe that this guy is running around doing all this, you know, crazy, you know, groping and sexual misconduct and all that, and then all of a sudden when he turns 33, which I think is the date that he would be married, He's had a perfectly happy marriage, faithful, you know, four daughters, five grandkids, never strayed. That's, that's an amazing character transformation for a man who's, you know, got the eye for the young girls and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't happen that way. 
if you are a flawed character, you continue to be flawed for most of your life, no matter how hard you try. All right, Mark, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there, man. I, I appreciate you calling in, and I, I think that the more the more squad should uh, they should bring Mark on. I mean, Mark just made a more articulate and forceful case in defense of at least reasonable doubt here for Judge Moore than anything I've heard for any, from any of the lawyers. Uh, so I don't know if Mark is a lawyer, but uh, he he certainly would be much much more adept at defending or at least raising doubts. Uh, in favor of Roy Moore uh, than what I've seen thus far from his legal team. Although the the 5 p.m. press conference guy was was pretty squared away. All right, all right, everybody. I think we can all uh, we can all sort of sit back now. Maybe you know, crack the knuckles, stretch out the back, whatever you got to do. I I think we're gonna leave behind the Roy Moore discussion for today. It's not going away. So don't, we're, we're probably gonna have more uh, more accusations tomorrow, more facts to throw into this. I, I do not think uh, Tyrone is is he stepping down? What do you think? What's your I, I no I I think no way no how at this point. Short short of an actual criminal indictment, which no one's thinking there's anything like that that could happen because no matter what, right? No way. And uh, one quick thing: the accuser that was debunked, that was attempted to be debunked, is now willing to testify under oath. Oh, okay. We'll see. We will see where this goes, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Culturally speaking, I would say there's differences. Looked up uh, Allie's background there. Wow, that's awesome that you have got a such a diverse background. It's really cool to read through that. But Please answer. What is, is Allie's, what is Allie Velshi's background have to do with dating under children, 14-year-old girls? Sure. In other in other countries, there's arrangement through parents for what we would refer Allie's to as consensual marriage. So Allie's from Canada. Yeah, that was. Uh, I know. I said we'd leave. The, this isn't really about Roy Moore. This is just about what what not to do on TV or or in general. Um, although it involves the Roy Moore case, but that was. I think his name is Trenton Garman. Is that right? Yeah, who's the attorney? Who who's one of the attorneys for Roy Moore? And and I, I guess he was. I, don't, I guess he was trying to establish some degree of uh, of rapport or something with the hosts there. And so he's like, you know, Ali knows because of it. You know, Ali Velshi is of South Asian descent, but was born and raised in Canada. He's a can- he is a Canadian Canadian. Uh, eh? He is Canadian. Uh, so to look at the host and to say, well, you know, you know about that because of different cultures not uh it is what we would say that was not a smooth move from the attorney for Roy Moore this got i just wanted you all to be aware of it this got a lot of a lot of play in the media today um and and you can imagine they were all jumping on this because uh, an underlying narrative in this whole discussion is uh, that the media really doesn't like Alabama and that that's an underlying point here with all this that that the media looks down at the South, particularly the, the 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 deep South, right, and and the deep red states in the South that vote for Republicans, and so anything that they can do that focuses in on those uh, stereotypes, anything that this was on MSNBC, so th- this they could not have been happier than this. But anything they can do to show a bunch of uh, you know red state Bible thumping you know hillbilly types on TV. They'll jump at that opportunity to 
mock people and to deride them. And and with this guy, though, I got to say, they weren't even he decided to do this on his own. This was on him, right? This is on. So like, don't given that they're trying to do that to begin with, they shouldn't, this guy, Trent Garvin shouldn't be making their job any easier of, Oh, you know, and look at this guy, this bigoted guy from Alabama, because you know, you get a lot of, a lot of uh, condescension, stereotyping and uh, general derision from uh, the media about places like Alabama in general. So anyway, it is, they just need to be any lawyers, anybody to attach to Roy Moore needs to be disciplined in the messaging and, and know what the heck they're doing. Um, Fusion GPS getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of attention today as well with the latest on that. Yeah, those uh, hearings earlier in the week. I'll tell you what's going on there. And uh, also, oh by the way, those uh, basketball players from UCLA they came back and they actually. Had some words to say for uh, for President Trump. So, yeah. I'd also like to thank President Trump and the United States government for the help that they provided as well. So there's some good news there. We'll be back with the GPS story. Stay with me. The dossier. The dossier, my friends. More on this. So Fusion GPS. Just a quick recap here. Fusion GPS was... Hired by the DNC during the Hillary campaign for the presidency. Fusion GPS contracted Christopher Steele to go dig up dirt on Donald Trump in Russia. And all along this, as, as this is happening, there are, uh, investig- there, there are communications that are going on between the press and Fusion GPS, we find out, and also the FBI was looking into this. The FBI may have even paid for some of the dossier expenses. There is still a lot here that we do not know that we should know. And Catherine Harridge, who is a, a formidable and, uh, and an excellent reporter over at Fox News, has a piece up that says that the Fusion GPS... Uh, Fusion GPS guy Glenn Simpson, the founder of it, was talking to the media about his uh, was talking to the media about the findings of the Russia dossier during you know this was the summer before the election. This is in that period of time. Now there's something that I, I do want to share with all of you, and it, it's a place where I think I can bring a little particular insight into this discussion that uh, you're not going to hear from other radio hosts. And that is that as somebody who was a CIA analyst, I can tell you that we are very much in, in what is now always called the intelligence community. I feel like we didn't call it the IC that much back in the day, although technically it's, it's true. But we were very attuned to what was going on in the media, very aware of it. You know, I mean, you, you go through the, the lunchroom, uh, the cafeteria or the mess hall or whatever, in any number of government buildings, you know, you're going to see some you're going to boo. You're going to see CNN. You may see Fox. You're definitely going to see CNN up there. And we all read the newspaper. You know, when I was in the CIA, I would, I would, you know, I was reading what's going on in the world. Open source information, right? Open source intelligence. Just a fancy way of saying stuff that's out there already. You know, the, the news reports that anybody can read, there's often a lot of very important information. In fact, much of 
uh, much of the most important information you will gather about big strategic major topics you get from what's open source, right? Understanding the history of a country or a group or an, you know, an issue. It's really only when you're, when you're drilling down most of the time that the classified stuff is actually really helpful and can be very, very useful. You know, the super secret stuff that the intelligence uh, agencies have access to, you know, it's, it's more for specificity, you know, uh, to, to know whether or not there's going to be a, uh, you know, whether or not there's going to be a famine in, in Yemen, you know, if you pay attention to the open source, you'll have a pretty good sense, right? I mean, you'll, if you know the players, you know what's going on there and you know that there's a blockade in place. I mean, you can get really far in terms of your information analysis. But I'm, I'm telling you this with regard to the Fusion GPS situation because it is not a leap to me at all. To think that because there is also, uh, especially when you're talking about, you know, FBI and these places have uh, they have public affairs offices, they have public affairs officers. Right. There is there's definitely connectivity between some parts of the national security apparatus, intelligence community, law enforcement and members of the media such that if the narrative of this, you know, the summer going in to the presidential election was solidified uh, by Glenn Simpson. You know, and when I mean solidified, I mean, if they had come up with this storyline and they were pretty good, had a pretty good sales pitch for it, and it was that there was this Russia, all well, that there was all this terrible stuff about Trump that he's doing in Russia and that he was working with the Russians and everything else. And then that was influencing not just the news media's approach to the entire campaign, but also may have been the basis for a counterintelligence investigation. That that is all that, that is all makes perfect sense to me because the reality is that government employees, I don't care who they are, and I don't care what kind of work they're doing, government employees, especially when you're talking about the high level the high level bureaucrats, right? The executive floor, executive suite people. They they care more about Oftentimes, and this is maybe the the dirty little secret, they care more about what is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or what's popping up on the screen in CNN than they do about any, you know, internal analysis of the situation. Because ultimately, if you work in the government, in the executive branch, you work for the president. And what do you think the president cares more about? Or what do you think the next president would care more about right the public perception of an issue as shown by the media or you know what's maybe unsourced uncorroborated information that's kept behind closed doors i mean you have to think of it in these terms so the more we find out about this and this is what Catherine harridge is reporting on uh, that fusion gps Jim, uh, glenn simpson was talking to the press about this was feeding them that storyline, the leap from the press knowing this to the government knowing and acting on it is very small. You know, I mean, there have been plenty. Of, there are plenty of cases where the media is, in fact, first on an issue and then comes the federal investigation or, you know, then comes the uh, the government's hand in it. You know, we, we should never think that the government is always at the forefront. Right? That's not the case. And what you have then is the possibility, the very real possibility that the entire Russia collusion investigation has 
existed and was was created as an outgrowth of a Hillary election oppo research effort, the whole thing. And that you want to talk about having a a, a really uh, profound impact on our sense of our own political systems and their durability and everything else. Imagine that. It's almost it's almost too brilliant, though, right? Because it would mean that Hillary would have hijacked the intelligence community. She would have run an information operation that made its way through the entirety of the media as well as into the corridors of government power, and they acted on it, too. Now you have to start thinking, how could that happen? Well, if the government was, if those government, we know the media is in Hillary's pocket, so they were totally down. And then you start thinking about deep state elements or individuals who view themselves as committed leftists who are willing to, if not, if they were not fooled by the dossier, meaning if they, if they weren't buying into it right away, they figured, well, this is the excuse we need. The dossier may be the excuse for the counterintelligence activities. The dossier may be the excuse for spying on Americans. And that's all they need is an excuse because then no one goes to prison, even if it comes out later. And I think it will, by the way, that the political targeting was obvious. As long as there is a pretext for it, you're not going to get any criminal prosecutions. So and I'll just tell that to you straight. A lot of people say, oh, the former Obama people, you know, they're going to get they're going to get sent away. No, it's not going to happen. Because they're not dumb. They're not that dumb, at least. They know that they just get a pretext for it and then you can get away with it. And there are plenty of ways, especially when you're talking about discretion of surveillance activities, plenty of ways that you can do it where bad judgment doesn't get you sent to prison as long as you operate within the letter, if not the spirit of the law when it comes to this stuff. So, you know, we got to keep an eye on the Fusion GPS situation. It is there's still a lot of unanswered questions there. And uh I, I want to know more. And, and a judge has now uh, a judge has now said that the secrecy that they're seeking is not is not going to fly. Um, just one a quick thing here from this piece. Fox News reported that Simpson met with Russia. Uh, pardon me. Russian lawyer. Or if you're a Russian lawyer, you could be a Ru- Russia. Uh, Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya before and after the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and others. Fox News reported that during that period, bank records show Fusion GPS was paid by a law firm for work on behalf of a Kremlin-linked oligarch while also paying Steele to dig up dirt on Trump. Okay, end quote. Um, are, are we really supposed to think that it's an accident? Think, think about the coincidence theorist you would have to be here. Not a conspiracy theorist, a coincidence theorist. Think about what a coincidence theorist you would have to be to think that it was coincidental that Natalia Veselnitskaya, this Russian lawyer, just happened to meet with Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS, the dossier guy, before and after the meeting at Trump Tower. That's it's a big world, Ty and Amy. It's a big world, right? Seven billion people or so now. You know, what, what What are the chances that that just happened? I think the chances are slim. I don't know what's going on there, but something's weird there. This woman, Veselnitskaya, is not, you know, this isn't Taylor Swift. People are lining up for miles and miles to meet her. So there's something going on, and I'll try to figure out what it is, and that's, that'll be part of our mission here on this show. 
Does anyone really think Trump is going to get impeached? Apparently some Democrats do. Let's talk about it when we come back. Stay with me. All right. David in Mississippi on WJMI uh, wants to talk about Fusion GPS and such. What's up, David? Hey, Buck. Hey, uh, loved your piece earlier about uh, how uh, <clears throat> the media, the liberals, hate the South. Um, I live in Mississippi, but I also grew up in Alabama, and you're spot on. And, and, and you know, for all your other listeners across the country, uh, liberal media in the South is a joke. Um, I, I live uh, just outside of Jackson, and, you know, it, it, it really is a, it, it's a local cartoon network, and you, you can see the bias even in the local network stuff. But uh, anyway, so uh, I've got the perfect solution to our problem with Fusion GPS and Robert Mueller and the Clinton can, uh, the Clinton clown campaign. So uh, this is what we what we need to do. We don't need to fire Mueller, okay? What we need to do is we need to, and I know I don't like the idea of a special counsel, but I, I think you're going to love this book. Let's appoint a second special counsel to look into the uh, corrupt Clinton criminal organization. And uh, let's don't fire Mueller. Let's put Mueller over the Clinton investigation so that he has to bite the hand that's feeding him right now. So you want to move? So you'd want to have a set because they're already talking about Uranium yeah, One and, and the Clinton Foundation and looking into that. Yeah, absolutely. But you're, so you're saying make Mueller run that, but then won't Mueller just run cover for them? If, if what you're saying is true, which is that he's, you know, the, the hand that feeds him is the Clintons. Right, right. But like, like you always say, the process is the punishment. Mm. Right? Well, I, I feel so, like you could probably get somebody who's going to make the process more of a punishment if you don't make it Mueller for Hillary. Well, he, here's what so and and so the other investigation, the one Trump Russian, the the the, the joke, like like appoint somebody like Roberto Gonzalez, you know, from the Bush administration, you know. So I'm not saying he's friendly, but he's honest, he's legitimate. And so Mueller's either going to do one of two things: he's either going to do nothing, which is going to destroy his credibility, and then and then he's going to actually investigate the Clintons, which in that case he's going to uh, indict her or wind up dead. Uh, okay, uh, David. Thank you very much for uh, thank you very much for calling in from Mississippi. Um, I think this is. I think that was that like kind of a Vince Foster reference you made at the end there. Uh, where was I on this? Oh yes, I was going to talk to you about impeachment um, and the articles of impeachment today uh, that were introduced about Trump. Here you go, Representative Cohen. Impeachment. Talking about it. The first is obstruction of justice, which deals with Mr. Comey's firing. The second is a violation of the Constitution's foreign emolument clause, which deals with monies he's taken from foreign powers without the consent of Congress. The third is a violation of the domestic emoluments clause, which deals with monies he's made from the United States uh, and his personal businesses beyond that of his salary, which is also forbidden by our Constitution. The fourth is underfining our federal judiciary and the fifth is undermining freedom of the press these are progressive actions he's taken over a period of time uh against the press and against the judiciary (laughs) okay okay oh and maxine waters says that we should impeach him too just in case you were wondering i continue to say impeach him (laughs) impeach 45 impeach 45 
I, I hope that they keep this up. Uh, th- this is only going to, in my opinion, this is only going to uh, rally Trump's base to his side, and it just shows how how feckless so many members of Congress really are. Impeach Trump for for his assaults on the press. I mean, we're, we're really going to do that's even in there. You're going you're to remove the president because you don't like what he says about the media. I mean, that's it's it's laughable or it would be laughable if it weren't over such high stakes and, and so serious in that sense. But the impeach Trump movement is uh, something that you're it's going to be going on for a while. They will not stop um, here. Play a. Here's how it uh, here's how it started out today. I meant to play this for you. Taking this action because of great concern for our country and our constitution, our national security, and our democracy. We believe that President Trump has violated the constitution, and we've introduced five articles of impeachment. There you go. Not going to go anywhere, <laughs> but oh, and, I, and one thing that I didn't pull I pull for the show, but I was thinking about. It. I was going to send it to Ty and Amy here, but. You know, there, there's it's pretty powerful. It's making the rounds on social media, speaking about impeachment and given everything that's going on right now in the news cycle and, and everything we're hearing about with Judge Moore and all the rest of it. Uh, there is a pretty amazing scene that uh, that was making the rounds on social media of and it's like Al Gore is there and, you know, all all the Clint, all the whole Clinton squad from back in the day. And it is. After he was, after Clinton, Bill Clinton, hey, what's up? I'm here. I'm back. After Bill Clinton was impeached, not removed from office by the Senate, but was impeached. And just the, it was right after, just the, he got a standing ovation from all these gathered Democrats after that. And was, it was just a reminder of how in Democrat circles, leftist circles, media circles, after all that, after the allegations came out of rape and sexual, you know, being uh, sexually, you know, grotesque with a with an intern in the Oval Office and the whole thing and the story, I mean, and all the, the stories about the dress and the, the, it was just, and the cigar and all of it, right? After all that, Democrats were still standing like and clapping like trained seals for Bill Clinton. And I just think it's worth remembering that, you know, as we go go forward here. I know I've talked about it before, but, but keep that in mind. And if you really want to feel like Democrats can't lecture anybody ever, anytime about moral probity or anything else, go back and read about Teddy Kennedy, a Chappaquiddick, decided to drive a car when he was drunk off a bridge with his mistress. Let her slowly drown in the vehicle. He just... He just got out of there. He just decided to scoot, try to get an alibi for himself nearby. Let a woman that he was having an affair with, but that he was sleeping with, drown. And he was the lion of the Senate, everybody. There were a few days there when the Visa Diversity Lottery uh, was getting some attention. There were a, a few days when we were looking at this, and I think a lot of Americans were waking up to just how absurd as a matter of policy this was that we would take uh, first of all in in case you you didn't read this and see this somewhere there are countries that are excluded from it 
based on their previous levels of immigration into the country. So automatically, the diversity lottery means that if we're taking a lot of people from a certain country, they're not going to be part of it. Now, I know the diversity lottery is only about 50,000 people a year. It's not that big in terms of overall numbers. But when you look at where we're taking a lot of people for the diversity lottery, they tend to be a, a lot of countries that have security problems. Uh, they are not countries where we are going to be picking up uh, per capita as a, as a function of the percentages. It is less likely that we'll be picking up uh, brain surgeons, rocket scientists, entrepreneurs, etc. It, it's just this is the reality. Now, every individual is judged as an individual. I understand that. But our immigration policy should be based on that, meaning that we don't just decide to give away visas at randoms. So people can come and stay in the country. It should be very much about what will someone bring to the country. And here's what Fox News is reporting on earlier in the week. At least five foreign nationals with suspected ties to terror resettled in the U.S. through the same visa lottery program that allowed New York City terror suspect Saifullo Saipov into the country, the Trump administration said on Tuesday. Saipov, the ISIS sympathizer who allegedly committed the Halloween terror attack in lower Manhattan that left eight dead and 11 injured, entered the U.S. from Uzbekistan in 2010 through the visa lottery, lottery program. Uh, the visa lottery, also known as the Diversity Visa Waiver Program, grants up to 50,000 immigrant visas annually, drawn from random selection among all entries to individuals who are from countries with low rates of immigration to the U.S. That's all from Immigration and Customs Services. So a merit-based system is what I think most Americans thought we had, and we don't. We have a chain-based immigration system, chain migration, so people who are here get to sponsor more people to come here. And that's primary. That's number one on the list. And then you also have these programs like the visa uh, immigration. I'm sorry, visa diversity program. And it's a security risk. Um, it's a security risk. And this is why five foreign nationals with suspected terror ties, according, according to the Trump administration, look, I don't have access to the raw data. They do. And they're saying that this is uh, something that is just needs to stop. I mean, quite honestly, quite obviously, this is a problem. We should get to a point where we are no longer in a position that would even make it possible or, or in the least that we would bring in somebody knowingly into this country who may be a security risk and is from a country that does not have the kind of vetting programs in place that the administration wants them to. So the, the visa... The visa diversity lottery is, I think, going to go away under this administration, which would be a good thing. Um, I, I should also note that there are when you start to look at how many individuals are being brought to the country under chain migration that are over the age of 50. It's pretty high. It's a pretty high percentage. So now we are just we are just going to be paying for the developing world's health care increasingly going forward that's what will happen if i mean if you had an immigration system think about it this way if you had an immigration system where somebody could come here and get permanent residency permanent status and they're a retire of retiree age and they're just coming to america for that point that portion of their lives that's when a vast majority of the medical bills come due for all of us 
So keep that in mind. As we have no reform of entitlements on the horizon and getting deeper and deeper into debt, $20 trillion into debt, as I talked to you about this. One more note on immigration today, and that is that a judge has stopped Trump from, or the Trump administration from withholding funds to sanctuary cities. And that is based on the, well, I, I had a feeling this would happen because, for one, it is not clear. And I'm, I, I have immigration experts who are hawkish on the issue of border security, who are hawkish on the um, the issues that the Trump campaign ran on when it comes to immigration. And there are some who will say that you, you can't you can't make police do immigration policing. Now, what the sanctuary city policy has to you know deals with is, will you hold people and, and will you notify and will you hold illegals? Notification is already a law, and there's no reasonable uh, there, there's no reasonable way for the sanctuary jurisdictions to get away with um, get away with not notifying, but not holding beyond what they would in order for immigration and customs enforcement to come along and having funds contingent on that. I'm not sure that the courts will side with the administration on that, even as it makes its way up, even as it goes even higher. I think that I'll look into the specifics of this decision, but I've been worried that this would happen for a while, that they would run run into, uh, once again, the separation here between local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and what the federal government can mandate with regard to police powers in the states. So we'll see. This will continue to play out. But so far, it seems like there's some hurdles to withholding those sanctuary city funds. We're going to talk about the uh, latest sexual harassment allegations out of Hollywood in just a few. Stay with me. Basically found myself um, with a group um, at night, hanging out, watching a movie at uh, an apartment around the corner from where I lived, which I assumed was his apartment. Again, I didn't know him well. I'd never been there before. It was it was six or seven of us there, and um, and uh, we all sort of fell asleep, or what I thought. We were just dozing off watching a film, and when I woke up, I was alone there with him and uh, tried to leave. And um, one thing led to another, and he didn't, you know, he was not going to allow me to leave. <laughs> So, yeah, so he blocked the door and um, and didn't let me leave. And, um, yeah, it got really scary from there. That was actress Natasha Henstridge speaking to uh, Megyn Kelly earlier this morning about an interaction that she had uh, talking about the, the alleged sexual assault at the hands of Brett Ratner, a, a very prominent Hollywood director who I believe as of today has been pulled off of any involvement with the Wonder Woman franchise, because Gal Gadot, the lead in that, has said that she wants nothing to do with anything that Brett Ratner has anything to do with. So more of these stories keep coming out, and there are more and more uh, ramifications and, and immediate action taken as a result of them. We have Emily Campagno with us here in studio. She's a legal analyst. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter, at Emily Campagno. Uh, Emily, thanks for staying through to talk to us about this one. Uh, the... Latest on the Weinstein case and Rose McGowan. Actually, I'm sorry. Before we get into that, hold that for one second. Henstridge, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner is now off the Wonder Woman movie. 
it, there's a, a sense I think that people have that this may be happening because the studios, yes, they, they want to take this seriously. They want to act. But is there also a possible liability question here for studios that if they if it's known that Brett Ratner, for example, engages in this kind of behavior and then on set once again, he does it. Is there any legal component to this that pushes the action from the studios or is it just they know that this is dirty stuff and they want to get as far away from it as fast as possible? Are they liable, I mean, for guys that are engaged in this kind of stuff, especially if they knew about it beforehand? Absolutely. 100%. So in any type of employer employment situation, if the employer, so if the studio knew about some type of predatory behavior or specifically someone with a history of assault in any type of dangerous situation who had not taken taken steps to mitigate. So we're not talking about someone, for example, with a record where one could argue we do hire ex-felons and that is within our right and here's how we disclose, et cetera. So notwithstanding that small subgroup, they are absolutely responsible for a new and did nothing about it when they are responsible for the hiring of including independent contractors on their set. So that's everyone from makeup artists to actresses, et cetera. So I, see, I mean, obviously in an employer-employee relationship, they could be liable for sexual harassment. What I mean is, does it heighten the liability if there is a pattern and a known, and, and the person's a known harasser and you bring them on? You know, are you more liable or is it more likely there'd be an adverse judgment against uh, a studio, for example, for sexual harassment? Essentially, is Brett Ratner a bigger, are you possibly going to have to pay out a bigger settlement if it is known and you brought him on anyway and then he does it again? There are a few ways to answer that. Number one, after the Catholic Church abuse scandals in California, there was a statute enacted which enabled people to sue someone with whom they have a professional relationship for not taking reasonable steps to stop or mitigate predatory behavior. So, yes, Answer number one, yes, absolutely, because the studio can be held liable and anyone who knew about his behavior did nothing and sent their person they represented or the makeup artist that they hired or whoever it was that they put him essentially in his, you know, laid them at his feet. Yes, they are liable under an additional set of laws with the statute of limitations of one year under that. Number two, yes, but it's kind of a complicated answer and here's why. So you can argue the personal liability of that, but you could also just argue that it ups the witness count. So it doesn't necessarily add to, well, you knew or should have known because that always follows the two of them or the two always follow together. Legally, you knew or you should have known. So ironically, in the eyes of the court, if you knew it ups that level, but if you didn't know, you still should have known. And especially given that kind of commonly held assumptions where oftentimes people have said, well, Everyone knew, but oh, I was that one in the dark. I was the one agent that had no idea. Forgive me. And now that person has cried insulation. So that goes to a credibility analysis on that too. But in terms of, of legally, I mean, you stated it in the beginning, employer, employee, and the fact that more people knew about it, it renders those people liable if they had a direct relationship with the person who eventually was a victim. And now tell me about the latest which this story, I keep thinking that, OK, we, we've gotten to the, the point in the Weinstein saga, this this whole unfolding drama of of unbelievable abuse and and assault and cover up and employing ex spies and all this stuff. There's another there is yet another chapter in the Weinstein saga that I wanted you to tell everybody about now that involves Rose McGowan. I'm so happy that we're discussing this 
because you and I discussed the really alarming revelations that came out about Weinstein's army of spies. So for your repeat listeners, when we discussed that, Weinstein basically employed an army of spies through private um, investigation agencies to derail a book publication by Rose McGowan and um, and essentially quash any type of publications about her allegations and those and that book. So cut to now in January, Rose McGowan was on a flight to D.C. or February 1st. Um, in January, she was flying, but on February 1st is when authorities got the warrant. She left her wallet on the plane. Her story is immediately upon getting off the plane, and this was for a women's march, she tweeted at, at the airline and filed a lost luggage claim. She then alleges that she, on Instagram, had a random person reach out and say, hey, we have your wallet along with your two bags of coke, cocaine. So from there, the story parallels that she was actually contacted on numerous occasions by people identifying themselves as detectives, as authorities who were saying, you left your wallet on the plane and it contained narcotics, traces of narcotics, quote unquote, and therefore you are culpable and we are issuing a warrant for your arrest. That was on February 1st. Now, she questioned the authenticity of these people's identifications throughout. So interestingly, from the get-go, she was taking screenshots of the Instagram posts. She was documenting these phone calls. And she wasn't meeting with them because she was nervous. And her story is such that she had been rendered fearful by the continued people who had entered her life under auspices of an authentic identity and trying to win her over when really she was discovering that they were... um, you know, working essentially for Weinstein. So ultimately, however, it is true and accurate that the that the state of Virginia um, executed a warrant for her arrest and have now filed charges against her for felony drug possession. Now, in the state of Virginia, uh, simple drug possession cocaine is a Schedule II drug. She's facing um, a not insignificant fine and up to a year in jail. And she has said this is a complete setup. You know, from her, her story is, this is incredible, literally, like, not believable. And she said, yeah, I admit I do drugs. I Marijuana is my jam, quote unquote. I would never think of doing a substance like cocaine, especially for a women's march. Like, she, she finds the whole thing unbelievable. But from what she's facing right now, it's, it's a felony charge. So, I mean, it looks like, especially when you add in the story about Instagram and Twitter, it, it looks like there could have been. And given what we have already read about Weinstein's army of spies, looks like this could be some kind of uh, social media hit. Totally. And I will say that part of her um, allegations and pointing, t- pointing toward the, again, in- incredulity aspect of this is the fact that the wallet and the bags were left unattended for, I want to say, over 50 hours. So I will say that taking a step outside of the army of spies and just as a legal analysis, there is no way that a chain of custody will will hold water. There's no way that she will be convicted of this count because that alone, even if it was left alone for one minute, that's enough to cause the doubt. So the fact that for hours and hours her things were left unattended and subject to tampering with, that right there is a tremendous red flag. It, it won't hold up in court. One more for you, Emily. Uh, J- uh, Democratic Representative Jackie Spire 
said that about $15 million, we have, we have the audio tie, please play it, $15 million spent in settlements paid out by the House of Representatives on behalf of those accused of sexual harassment. Go. saying now is, is that you know of two individuals who have paid out sexual harassment settlements, so taxpayer money has been used to protect the identity of these members of Congress? One member of Congress has um, been has settled a claim, and uh, there has been a taxpayer settlement. Is this something that, um, if the taxpayer is involved, don't we have the right to know? Well, I think you do have the right to know. But right now, under the system, we don't have a right to know. Mm-hmm. We do know that there's a, about $15 million that has been paid out uh, by the uh, House on behalf of harassers in the last 10 to 15 years. I, I don't really know how many members it, that entails. Okay, Emily, uh, $15 million over 10 years, a not insignificant sum of money. Over, you know, you're looking at about $1.5 million a year on average going out to people for sexual harassment claims on Capitol Hill. Some of those may be frivolous. I'm guessing a lot of them are not. And I think that the dam may be breaking on the next series of sexual harassment revelations, which would be coming out of D.C. and out of our nation's capital and and the Capitol building itself. I would love that. Here's why. More even than the enlightening of identities of those kinds of predators in our nation's government, what makes my blood boil is the is the um, inappropriate stewardship of our taxpayer dollars. As a federal attorney for a long time, part of my role was being an accurate steward. Every minute that a federal employee is working for the government, they are being a steward of taxpayers' money because that's their salary. Everything they use, every resource they use is our money. And what kills me is the thought that up to $15 million of my, our money was spent on this and that we don't have the visibility into it. To me, it's another example of how our government's opaque and inefficient and wasteful system is so toxic. And it would be really refreshing if we could bust that open because I think, um, frankly, a lot of the toxicity comes from the inappropriate use of our money. And so I would love to see that be the next focus of and expose. Emily Campagno, attorney and legal analyst. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us here in studio. Great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Rolling into a break, team. We'll be right back. You know, there are a lot of ways that we think of technology changing the world around us. Uh, we think of it making it easier to communicate. We think of how it changes our businesses. But what we are, I think, seeing more and more of now and getting a, a better understanding of in time is that technology also changes human behavior and that our behaviors are shifting in response to it. A great example of this, to focus in on one problem that used to be a a big one in this country and that technology has essentially eliminated. It still happens, but in in such smaller numbers that it's, it's pretty incredible. Car theft. We grew up, I remember being at my friend's house uh, and his dad coming in and saying that the, uh, the car, I believe, it was a, uh, I believe it was a Range Rover, had been stolen, meaning, you know, it was gone, that their car had been, and it was just, you know, you had that moment of, oh, adults, I was young, I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, but, you know, adults very upset, I mean, it really, 
and, and what was also very noticeable was it was upsetting, but it was all right. You know, call the insurance company. A car has been, you know, our car has been stolen. I can't believe it, but it wasn't unheard of. Car theft in New York City has dropped over ninety percent. I think it's actually dropped over ninety eight percent. Car theft is a crime that almost does not occur anymore. The only exceptions, those are wondering, is if you have a car that is so uh, old doesn't sound like a nice way to say it. If your car is such a a classic, thank you, Tyrone. If your car is such a classic that it does not have electronics that were made circa, I think, 2003, 2004, um, then it may still be stolen. So you have some really old civics or some some classic soon to be collectors item uh, collectors item Honda Civics from like 1996 they might steal it and, and just scrap it use it for parts but even that's become more difficult because all these places now that take cars have to take your ID and now they know who dropped off the car so but car theft is almost gone and i remember it being a uh, a thing that you had to think about i remember my dad you know ever make sure you lock the doors and he wasn't being paranoid Cars were getting stolen in the 80s and 90s all the time, and they'd put them on a shipping container, and then they'd send them overseas if it was a luxury car, or you know they would they would go take it into a chop shop. Technology, because they have GPS tracking in all these cars now, and because they have a chip that also does not allow the car to start. I mean, you can't hotwire a car now without that chip, and the dealership has the uh, the connectivity and and the code for that. But that's all different now. So that's a problem that used to be a big thing. I mean, their whole move, you know, Grand Theft Auto, you think about that franchise. It's really, theft Auto doesn't really exist anymore. It's gone now because of technology. So these are, and I'm somebody who I, I wish I had the time and the resources to pull this together. We keep thinking about how policing has, has gotten, and yeah, policing has gotten better and more effective in part because of technology, uh, surveillance cameras, much better communication among law enforcement, much better databases and everything. But also, I think there's been a huge a huge crime drop in this country in the last 15 or 20 years, last 20 years or so, because of the technologies that are all around us now. And you just think about this, right? Circa 19, circa 1980, right, ar- right ar- around the time that, although not that year, around the time that I was born, if you heard something loud out on the street, and you looked out your window. I'm assuming now we're in an, an urban area, but, you know, it could be in a town somewhere. You heard something on the street. And sure enough, you, you know, you heard you heard somebody yelling and then someone got stabbed. Uh, well, you definitely don't have a video camera. You definitely don't have a phone on you to call the police. And if you're just walking on the street, if you're not in your home, I know I was saying you're in your home, you may have to now run to get to a payphone somewhere. The whole process is slowed down dramatically. That's just one way to think about it. Never mind how all the then you can pull surveillance. You know, every time you go to an ATM machine, you're under surveillance. When I go home on the subway here in New York City, there's cameras everywhere. There are cameras and communication devices all around us that affects behavior. And here's why I'm thinking about this, though, other than just to talk about. I did a little research over the weekend on how car theft. You just don't hear about it because it doesn't really happen anymore in this country. Uh, It does. But like I said, down 95 plus percent. Uh, at least in New York City. I, I assume it's like that in the rest of the country. You got to always know that you could be recorded now. And it's it's changing a lot. And you, your voice can be recorded, you video, you, your, your actions can be recorded. And there's a district attorney. I mean, this audio, 
If you have not heard, we're going to play something for you now. This audio is of a of a young uh, assistant district attorney in the Dallas area in Texas who's getting a ride from an Uber driver. And so just think about this Uber, the ride sharing service, very much on the on the forefront of technology. Uber is working with Google and working with uh, different or no, not with Google. I forget, I forget who, but they're working with, I think they are, I don't know, to create uh, almost like a neural net for cars and ride sharing. And I mean, there's this whole future of, the whole future of transportation is changing in very interesting ways that will affect all of us, I should note. Um, but that's the reality of, of Uber's future. But right now, Uber means that, you know, when you get into a, you can't, you're not just paying cash for a cab anymore. They know who you are. They've got your name. They've got your credit card. So there is a level of of trust that is built, which is a great thing, right? I've had I've had fantastic conversations with Uber drivers. Um, I you know I had one Uber driver some months ago who was talking to me about how you know his parents wanted to make uh, make him have an arranged marriage. You know he was like in his mid twenties, and I was like, "You live your life, man. You don't you know whatever." Of course. So you know we, we <laughs> so the in depth conversations one has with an Uber driver, but. Uh, I've had some great chats with with Uber drivers over the years, and this this Uber driver though had a an assistant district attorney from Texas, uh, a, uh, a a young woman about thirty one thirty two years old, and she was trying to get a ride home, and she told him to turn off the GPS, and now she forgets that this is the we're in the Uber era now. You're not in a cab. You give the cabbie a couple of crinkled up dollars if you throw up in the back or something. You know, people used to do that kind of stuff. And it was the cab driver's problem. It was a really nasty, stinky thing to do. But now they know you. They've got you. The moment you get in that Uber car, you know, your behavior is literally being graded and recorded. And this assistant district attorney down in Dallas forgot that, it seems. She had had a few adult beverages. Um, I'm not sure what. But uh, I'm guessing maybe some Apple Teenies and maybe a Cosmo. But she decided to get into it with the driver. She turned, she told him to turn off the GPS and she would give him directions. She got lost, understandably, under the situation because she's clearly inebriated. And then this happens, Tyrone. Take me home, dude. Grow the The up. Recklessly keeping 
not. So you're kidnapping me right now. Amazing. You're committing a third, two first degree felony. <laughs> so do you want to take me home? Or you're you kidnapping me right now. Please get out of my car. This is kidnapping. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. Oh my gosh. Cool. It's amazing. I was trying to be nice to you. <clears throat> yeah, real nice. Uh, dude, we're, yeah, we're pretty much at the end of it, right? I mean, wow. Um, but we didn't, that was, I mean, the kidnapping is my favorite thing because she's an assistant district attorney, everybody. This is a person who prosecutes people for a living for crimes. It's like, it's like kidnapping. Like, it's like a first to third or like seventh degree misdemeanor to the nth power, I think, of like the kidnapping statute. So... Yeah, and then she, the, the, I'll tell you, really, in some ways, the worst part for her of the whole thing was she also was on video saying, who do you think they're going to believe? Like, I'm a district attorney, and you're just an Uber driver. Ooh, yeah, by the way, any, any that's that's when when she goes there, any sympathy that anyone watching the video would have for, like, all right, she's drunk, or whatever. You know, when she goes to the, I'm going to now uh, browbeat somebody who's, earning an honest living and, and providing a, a, a service that people want and doing so professionally, as this guy is clearly doing. He's like, can you please get out of my vehicle? That she's going to uh, talk down to somebody like that. It, she, didn't, she didn't do herself any favors, but she forgot, she forgot Buck's rule, which is that technology is changing everything. It's changing everything right now. And if you are in an Uber, and it's one of the reasons why I like Uber so much, because you know there's so, a lot of middleman transactions in the past and this will be a part of our conversation in the future about uh, blockchain and bitcoin a lot of those middleman transactions whether it's a bank dealing with a realtor is to create trust and accountability in the transaction and with something like a ride share service or any number of things now um you know I, I, you can now get a, a massage therapist who can come into your home uh, there's a there's an app there's literally an app for that there are personal trainer apps where the and instead of just going through the yellow pages or going by word of mouth you have that verification of somebody and that validation of them on both sides right that can create trust in the transaction but that also means that behavior is now recorded that your words, your actions, your deeds are uh, scrutinized at a higher level or can be scrutinized at a much higher level. And I will tell you that assistant district attorney, uh, her career is never going to be the same. She was canned after that. She was fired, which I, what can you imagine? I mean, th- now they're going to have her process. She's, she's going to be up there like, excuse me, sir, but you know, your public drunkenness is unacceptable. You know, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that the prosecutor can be on video uh, going going off on a guy and, and saying that it's – first of all, it's like she doesn't even know the law, too. I mean, I don't care how drunk I've been. I wouldn't think that being in someone's car or they're telling me to get out of the car is kidnapping. She's got that – it might be like abandonment on the highway side, you know, or the sidewalk, which isn't a crime, but it's definitely not kidnapping. So she got fired, but it's my rule, which is that uh, – Technology now means that ev- everything is everything is recorded, and that means that our, our behavior is shifting accordingly. Uh, we'll get into some Team Buck Speaks here in a minute. I'll be right back, team. 
All right, team, it is that time in the show when we get into Team Buck Speaks, uh, which is when I get the opportunity to read your messages, one of my favorite parts of the whole show. I uh, very much enjoy this aspect of uh, what I get to do day in and day out. So with that, and I'm now, as I'm on air with you, I'm actually looking for one in particular that, of course, I am having trouble finding. Um, but we have... Hold on a second here. Um, Sean writing, we are going to elect Roy Moore in Alabama. If you see Hannity, tell him he's wrong. Before he loses a bunch of listeners in Alabama, innocent until proven guilty, y'all don't need to become CNN over at Fox. Well, I don't work at Fox, but uh, and um, I get you I mean, we'll see what happens with Alabama. I, I don't know. It's looking Looking pretty rough these days for those who are, uh, well, we'll see. Uh, It's a crazy, it's a crazy political environment. That much is for sure, I think. So um, I, I I appreciate the, uh, the advice and I will certainly um, keep it in mind as we go forward here. All right, here we go. This is a great one. Dave uh, writes in, Buck, your show is the best as an army officer, I really appreciate your historical deep dives. Would it be possible to post them separately from the full shows so that they are easier to find? I would love to let my kids hear what they are not getting in school. Also, thanks for continually breaking down and highlighting the differences between Sunni and Shiite and why they do what they do. Shields high. And this is great. P.S. When our CRAM unit was in Afghanistan, our motto was shields high. That's awesome, Dave. That's like one of the best messages I've gotten in a very long time, and uh, I am honored. Thank you very much, uh, very much, sir. I appreciate it. All right, now let's get. Oh, oh, and to your question, I got all, I got all almost weepy there when I heard that your unit's motto was shields high. Uh, to your question about history uh, in the new year, and those who have been longtime Team Buck listeners are going to say, "Yeah, right, it's happening, guys." In the new year, there will be a series of separate. History podcasts. It will be a separate podcast from the show, and it is happening, I believe, either January or February, but it is happening, meaning that the bosses here want it to happen. We've talked about it. History deep dives. They'll be probably in the realm of 40 minutes to an hour an episode, uh, and it's just going to be the most fascinating stuff that I find from history. So all different battles, but also just storylines that we should all know uh, and and that it'll be within a theme that'll be largely cross versus crescent. So a lot of not just not not history of the Islamic world, but the history of the uh, battles back and forth between Christianity and Islam. And so you can imagine some of the episodes are already up in up in my head, but there will be others as well. Uh, so that is coming in the new year. It is happening. It has been decided. So I'm glad you guys enjoy those. Uh, all right. We have Sam writing in. Hi, Buck. I applaud your coverage of the Menendez story. I think you've been one of the only people in media giving it the depth and re- reporting it deserves. One interesting aspect of the case is I don't think even you have mentioned is how much more serious everything got for him in the media and among other Democrats once Menendez came out against the Iran deal. Even just looking at the dates on the Google search results creates an interesting timeline. I'm also wondering how many other members of uh, 
Team Buck Israel. Maybe they could write in to Team Buck Speaks. I'd love to put together a Facebook group and maybe even organize a live listening get-together. might be hard to get people to come out at 1 a.m., but maybe if we serve gluten-free pizza, dark chocolate, and frothy lattes, it will happen. Shields high from Sam. Well, Sam, I know we have some folks who are Team Buck Israel who listen to the show uh, via the Internet, either on BucksAxon.com or the uh, iHeart app, uh, or by listening to the podcast on iTunes. How many? I don't know. Uh, So I can't give you an exact figure, but there certainly are some because I've heard from them. And if you could get together a a Team Buck party in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, that sounds awesome to me. So I I wish you the best of luck with that endeavor. Let me know if I can help. And with that, I would say to all of you, please do download the podcast Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. I have a feeling we're going to have quite a show coming up tomorrow and the next day. So get ready for it. Until then. As I always say, no matter what comes your way, shields high.